From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence, powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, The National Conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, June 6th through Friday, June 10th, 2022. Another wild week in the tempestuous 20s. However, because this is the weekend of the annual Talkers Convention and the entire staff of the trade publication, including yours truly, will be gathering with talk show hosts from around the nation, we're going to skip doing an overview of the week's top stories and replace them with the biggest stories of the first half of 2022. Now, get ready for a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, we've got righties, and we've got fence-sitters. Please don't get angry. Just listen closely, and while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism regardless of whether or not you agree. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey at Talkers with a countdown of the 10 biggest topics of 2022 and a half. Harry Hurley in Atlantic City, Dom Giordano in Philadelphia, Dr. Renee Kohansky in Princeton, Dr. Dahlia Wax in Las Vegas, and attorney Steve Weissman in Boston, looking back at the past six months of powerful history. Influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Rap, heard coast-to-coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K., the hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America for the first half of 2022. Thank you, Michael. At number 10, climate change. There was an abnormal preponderance of wildfires, droughts, floods, and severe storms during the first half of 2022, continuing a trend that has been unfortunately building for years. And providing fuel for the fires of political controversy and debate about climate change and what's allegedly causing it. At number nine, social media and free speech. Elon Musk dusted up a storm of conversation and intrigue when he announced his intention to use his awesome financial power to buy Twitter and restore Donald Trump's canceled account, even though the former president says thanks but no thanks. Of course, that transaction is yet to be completed, but the conversation about the impact of social media on a variety of topics, including free speech, privacy, and mental health, continues to rage. At number eight, immigration. The humanitarian crisis at the southern border has only worsened during the first five and a half months of 2022, causing terrible problems for police, residents, and ranchers in and around such cities as El Paso and Juarez, Texas. There's been heated debate over President Biden's thus far unsuccessful attempts to overturn President Trump's Title 42 order, which placed emergency restrictions on immigration due to the pandemic. At number seven, abortion rights. The leak revealing the Supreme Court's 
intention to overturn Roe v. Wade put abortion rights on the front burner of the national conversation, sparking a legislation frenzy in a number of states to bolster their own pro-life or pro-choice inclinations should the ruling be abolished on a federal level. Hardly anyone saw that coming. It was one of those unanticipated surprise stories that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. At number six, race relations and voting rights legislation. The mass murder at a supermarket at a predominantly African-American Buffalo, New York community several weeks ago was a major 2022 low point in America's ongoing struggle with racial tensions. On the political front, the failure of Congress to pass key legislation to bring several voters' rights bills into law further strained race relations, not to mention the issue of critical race theory. At number five, the January 6th committee, partisan politics and elections. It's hard to believe that we marked and then passed the first anniversary of what's come to be known as the January 6th riot at the Capitol during the early weeks of 2022. And it's equally hard to believe that the January 6th hearings are still grinding on, with the Republicans screaming that it's a painful partisan witch hunt that's gone on way too long, while the Democrats have been bellyaching that the committee's not moving fast enough and gathering evidence to make a decisive legal move against former President Trump. Meantime, all of this is shaping the conversation and debates regarding the primaries for the forthcoming midterm elections, as well as the big one in 2024. At number four, the Russia-Ukraine war and U.S. foreign relations. Vladimir Putin's invasion of neighboring Ukraine was another one of those stories that caught most people by surprise during the first half of 2022. It's had an enormous effect in changing the course of American foreign policy in terms of our relationship with NATO, as well as our tense frenemy ship with China, which is now even further entrenched in the dumper. At number three, crime and violence, mass shootings and gun control. The continuing rise in urban street crime and endless gun violence has become a driving political issue in 2022, and the mass shootings in schools and public places have created a deeply disturbing, frustrating numbness among Americans. Of course, the political discourse prompted by this sad, frightening and angering chain of events has focused primarily on the endlessly controversial debate over gun control to the exclusion of so many other elements that are contributing to our society's toxicity. At number two, COVID-19. The impact that the coronavirus has had on our lives from 2020 through the first half of 2022 is incalculable. And despite the wish of many to completely put it behind us, the virus lingers on through its variants and uncertainty rules the day regarding vaccines. We'll be feeling the impact of the COVID era for years to come, as it has altered the course of communications technology and workplace habits, as well as the very nature of public events and norms. And at number one, the economy. The first five and a half months of 2022 have brought economic pain to a majority of Americans. Supply chain breakdowns, a roller coaster stock market, labor force problems, baby formula shortages, and the fear of a recession. Topped off by the financial ravages of soaring inflation, causing people's savings to shrink as the cost of gasoline, housing, food, goods, and services rises at a rate we haven't seen in more than 40 years. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. Your plug into the Michael Harrison rap. Let's dive right into the interview segment of our special 2022 half-year review. Joining us is one of our favorite go-to guys, the Talker's Heavy 100 morning host of our affiliate WPG in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Harry Hurley. Can you believe that 2022 is half over? I mean, isn't it extraordinary? We talk about it all the time, Michael, 
And that's why it's so important to have a sense of urgency. I don't believe in living fatalistic, but I believe in living with a sense of urgency because it's it's almost impossible to believe that 2022 is half over. And Michael, it has been a consequential first half. Mm. Doesn't it seem like we were just talking about, oh, we can't wait till 2020 is over. It's the year from hell. And then 2021, where the heck did that go? But it became quite apparent during 2021 that um, things were not getting better. As a matter of fact, maybe they were getting worse. And of course, I'm talking general conversation generally here. Obviously, not everything and everybody is unhappy. But um, it, it, these have been really tough years. And now we're into 2022. Um, do, you, do you think that the events of these years have fed into the perception that time is going faster? That's such an interesting point. I, here's what I think. I think there is a dour mood in America. It's probably more dour than it's been since the 1970s, late 1970s, when we had oil embargo, odd and even plates, obviously very high gas prices, very high inflation. You have to admit, it feels like history is repeating itself. So that's the mood of the country. It's very dour. That proves, though, that just because you're in a bad mood doesn't mean the time goes slower. Time is going by, it seems, faster than ever before. There is this adage that each year of your life does go faster than the one before it because there's less, there may be less in the in the front view than there is in the rear view mirror. So all of that, I think, adds in. But you would think during multiple waves of a pandemic and high inflation and high oil prices and supply chain broken and can't even get baby formula and and all these different things, the food supply chain, all of it being so um, challenged or even broken. Uh, I found out the other day, there's 300 chips in a normal, ordinary car, 3,000 chips in an electric car. Where, where the heck are we going to get all them from? Mm. So we're going to be getting cars without chips and you'll get WEOs and get them later. I mean, so even with all of these issues, things are going quicker than ever before. I feel it. And everybody that I talk to says that. Yeah, it's interesting. The, 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 the first theory that you mentioned is that every moment, every hour as we yeah. get older is a smaller percentage of the time yeah. we've experienced. So yeah. it feels like less, which which makes yeah. kind of sense. The yeah. other one is that um, when, when the pace of life speeds up and you're dealing with more and more and more and more things, we judge time based on how many events we experience. If there were no events, time would not seem to be moving at all. <laughs> it, 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 it's funny how we, we perceive perceive time as from one event to the next. So when you're multitasking and you have events on top of each other, the time seems to go faster. And then there's the esoteric view of it that um, the universe is expanding and the universe is made up of a substance called space-time. And therefore, maybe time is moving faster as the universe's expansion is accelerating. This is all stuff that, you know, people who are follow astronomy and physics and science are aware of. It's all over YouTube. And, and, and there is a big um, culture out there that follows this stuff sort of as armchair, uh, armchair scientists, which I am. Oh, my gosh. I love, I, you know, I geek out when you talk like this. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Michael Harrison just went to the time-space continuum on us. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, guilty. But how about this? How about a little um, fly in the ointment of, of this well-greased theory? How about the more than a year plus where people didn't even leave their homes? Mm -hmm. Broadway was closed. Movies were closed. All entertainment, all recreating. Nothing was available. And guess what? 
it seems as though time still flew by very quickly. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. And and that is amazing when you think about it. And, and that, you know, now, um, you know, last week you and I were talking about um, – uh, changes in culture, going back to work, the benefits of staying home, the benefits of going to work, and uh, what impact that all has. Um, this quarantining and working from home and having the kids at home has absolutely redesigned in the year 2020, 2021, the year 2022, this chapter of history that we're in that really has no boundaries between the years of the 20s. It's all just blending into one big glob of time. It's changed our architecture. It's changed the way people are buying houses, the way we're designing our houses. Uh, the and it has proven to be on one level, as you say, we could work in our pajamas. I think that's what you mentioned. Um, yes. we, we also have to work with the kids screaming at each other and the distractions that come from being at home. Uh, no wonder people are going crazy. And I, yeah, I say that with well, all Michael, due respect. Well, Michael, look how parents got an eyeball into their children's classrooms mm. that they never saw before. And the big brouhaha that, and dust up that happened from all that with parents being called domestic terrorists because they really got engaged and didn't like in some cases. They loved their teachers for the most part, but in some cases they didn't like what they were seeing. They didn't like what they were hearing. They didn't like some of the uh, curriculum. And, and these different things that were going on, that's another byproduct of the pandemic because parents would have been at work. They would not have been in, in the home digital classroom. So the pandemic brought many things to the forefront. Telemedicine that would have happened one day, but not when it did. Now, guess what? I don't know about you, Michael. A lot of people, they do telemedicine now uh, unless they absolutely – because you think about it. Many times you go to a doctor's office. And you're not even feeling that sick, but you're there. And then you're in a room filled with people who are sick. Now, if you can just do a telemedicine visit and and do all that uh, virtually, you save time. You're not exposed to anything, uh, colds, COVID-19, or anything else. Uh, so it has changed a lot of things. Yeah, you, you you go to the doctor's office. You drive to the office. You yep. you 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 wait in the waiting room for um, anywhere from five minutes to an hour, maybe longer. Then they take you into the little room where the doctor will be with you in just a moment, and, and you and you sit there, and the the door is closed, and you're in a small room, and uh, you you look at the chart on the wall of some of human anatomy or <laughs> whatever it is the doctor's specialty is. You get to see it in full display play on, on some kind of a chart or a plastic skeleton. Um, and you sit there and you wait. And then all of a sudden the door knocks and uh, like, like the doctor, you know, are, are you, okay, no, I'm busy. <laughs> the doctor comes in, how are you? Uh, and the doctor is looking in his file to uh, her file to remember what the hell your case is about. And um, you have a brief conversation that often doesn't involve any reason for you to be there at all. And by the time you're done, it's a couple of hours between the travel and everything. The doctor has to, you know, have you there. And you could have done it on, on, the, on the screen for in five minutes. In five minutes. And then you probably took two hours. Right. Uh, so who, who's signing up for that right now? I don't, I, again, I don't know uh, everyone's uh, individual preference in the Michael Harrison uh, universe, but 
I haven't done that in a couple of years. That's Harry Hurley of our affiliate in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Heritage Station WPG, on our special 2022 Half Year in Review. Coming up next, a visit with Dom Giordano of WPHT in Philadelphia. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Wrap. One of the great bands of the golden age of album rock, Gun Hill Road, has been around for more than 50 years. The members of Gun Hill Road are Steve Goldrich, Paul Reich, Glenn Leopold, Brian Coonan, and yours truly, Michael Harrison. I wrote the lyrics to a song on our new album, What Year Is This? It's titled, I Know You're Real. It's about the relationship between human beings and our friends in the animal kingdom. I know you're real. Take a moment to write down the following web address to see the music video of this inspirational song that contains some wonderful animal images that'll rock your heart and soothe your soul. Here's the address. Write it down. I know you are real.com. That's I know you are real.com. If you love animals, you'll feel real good after seeing this video. I know you are real. Continuing now with our special 2022 half-year in review installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap. The mass murder shootings have collectively been one of the key topics in the national conversation for the past six months, and then some. Joining us now for his perspective on the deeply disturbing issue is midday host at WPHT Philadelphia, Dom Giordano. Dom Giordano, uh, once again, another mass shooting. Um, you and I are having this conversation, full disclosure, last Sunday, right after the Philadelphia shooting. And uh, we are going to utilize this conversation in our 2022 and a half year in review. So um, that being put into time perspective, what's the feeling in Philadelphia uh, today? Well, I would say, Michael, the shooting has broken through a hair from the usual. I mean, we had 562 homicides last year. It's getting attention, though, more nationally than banner headlines here in Philadelphia. Uh, It's kind of uh, numb to that. This shooting, though, happened in a place, big tourist spot, even a song, Where Do All the Hippies Go, South Street of years ago. It is a happening place in Philadelphia, a hip place. A lot of crowds, tourists, particularly on a Saturday night. And it was, um, shall we say, indiscriminate. The one shooter, based upon the video I've seen and all accounts, just firing into a massive crowd. On top of which, people are asking, where were the police? Why don't they have enough people? Because on Thursday night, there was a shooting on South Street. Similar to this, this appears to be retaliatory. And this is a place where it just doesn't happen. Out of the top 10 spots in Philadelphia, you would expect police presence, this not happening, this would be in them. So sadly, when these shootings happen in high poverty, uh, minority neighborhoods that are under siege by all this, no one in Philadelphia seems to care anymore. But when it happens here, there is a little bit more rustling. And I know it's hard to believe, what does it take before it breaks through uh, one thing out there is the, the people that work this, uh, really good reporters that I usually have on, 
their first thing is that police feel these are not first-time uh, felons that committed this, meaning we have a revolving door here in Philadelphia, similar to San Francisco and L.A. and New York, where people who are let out who are violent and should not be let out. And in the end, that'll probably be the biggest takeaway from this. Isn't there a difference between shootings and crime-infested um, uh economically deprived neighborhoods uh, where the shootings are often um, robberies, the shootings are often gang violence, drug deals gone bad, turf wars, things of that nature, and shootings in public places, as you mentioned, South Street, um, concerts, uh, a whole different psychology to that. And then the third type of shooting, the ones at schools. Um, do you see that there's a difference between these in terms of the psychology of them and then the impact on the media and um, politics? Well, certainly, Michael, between the shootings that happen in the poverty neighborhoods. But this one on South Street is similar and that I think people believe that there is no boundary anywhere. It can happen anywhere in Philadelphia around feuds, drugs, et cetera. As far as the school shootings, you're exactly right. These are almost routinely uh, people that are mentally disturbed, lashing out. There doesn't seem to be any connection, any pattern to uh, anything. And uh, we've talked a lot to, to be toward the tail end of this year, again, about solutions to this. And I believe even if uh, the Democrat Party got their way on all these things that are being debated, some of which I think as far as a half year in review, I had Rand Paul on. He's in favor of red flag laws, but he would put huge hurdles in there as far as taking away guns, due process, et cetera. That's a breakthrough with the school shootings. I think it comes down to even if everything else were solved, you need a uh, a perimeter around schools, and you need to have someone in there that can stop someone with deadly force. That's what anyone rational says. No matter what happens on the big gun debate, that is a given. How do you feel about the political discussion? Do you think there's any positive going on, or is it negative right now in terms of violence in America, all of the different kinds of violence that we've discussed? Well, I think that there are smart people and somewhat, I mentioned Rand Paul, he's a guidepost. When I had him on the other day, he said, yes, we could be looking at uh, mental illness and stopping this and people having weapons. And he and I talked about exactly how that would be written so that due process would be respected. For Rand Paul to say it, that's a breakthrough. Sadly, mm -hmm. President Biden, though, is just a walking cliche of talking about cannons in the Revolutionary War era. You know, just off the hip stuff. He's not the face. If we're going to get this done, I'm not a big fan of Senator Murphy of Connecticut politically, but he is a good face of this. In other words, he's a details guy. He's willing to accept something on the Democrat side that would advance the ball, even if it is not overwhelming. And I think Rand Paul uh, looks very good on the Republican side. Ted Cruz, not so much. And what about the National Rifle Association? Are they doing anything to um, further productivity or a productive conversation, or are they an impediment to that? I would say they're an impediment uh, to it, Michael, and that, that they're having enough trouble uh, keeping their house in order financially and, and in, in various ways, just the organizational aspect of it. I don't think Wayne LaPierre is a good steward of that. 
And again, I go back to someone like Rand Paul. His credentials are impeccable. If he gets in league with Murphy and some of these others, say over the red flag thing, and actually would write the language, and Murphy might go along with that, of the uh, due process impediments that would have to be put into play before any of this could happen, I would tout that as real progress, smart progress, not some of the others I mentioned, or either not that smart or just overtly political. As Dom Giordano, the midday host at WPHT Philadelphia, you're plugged into our special 2022 half-year in-review installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap. Between the shootings and the economy and the pandemic and the war, the national mood is in the proverbial turlet. Joining us to talk about it is well-known forensic psychiatrist and medical field podcaster, Dr. Renee Kohansky. This has been one of the most roller coaster years that I have seen in a very, very long time. We had thought we had seen the worst of it in terms of, I would say, um, at least from a mental health perspective, when the COVID crisis first start. But uh, <laughs> what's the expression? Uh, you know, 2020 happened, and then 2022 came, and 2022 said, hey, hold my beer. Or, yeah. I don't know, I may have that backwards. Yeah, but the point is that we are living in an era that um, the, the boundaries between the years is very blurry. Um, it all started at the end of 2019 when we heard there was this, uh, this strange uh, disease out there, this uh, virus. And uh, I remember in 2020, one of the things I heard people say all the time was, I can't wait till this year is over. This is the year from hell. And then 2021 came. And it nothing nothing of course changes on New Year's Day to quote a U two song, but we tend to make boundaries and have and are hopeful for better years. But nothing changed, and all of a sudden it's twenty twenty two. Time has become uh, distorted. Um, people are depressed. We had you on last week. We were talking about um, how the current events are, are are upsetting people. What are deeper implications that you're finding in terms of the isolation? that I hear is um, wreaking havoc with people's um, moods and, and minds per social media. The combination of quarantining and social media, is that having any impact on the, on the human brain? You know what's really ironic, Michael, is that we started this conversation many, many years ago, long before we could have ever seen or predicted something as, as virulent, both physiologically and psychologically, as the COVID virus about the impact of the internet on the human brain. So you and I were having this conversation about how interacting with the internet was causing sort of this dynamic on a neuro on a neurocircuitry level. And then COVID happened where it basically forced people uh, through, you know, through social isolation to interact with the internet in a more intimate way because we've lost our interactions with each other due to social isolation. And this interaction, I believe, has caused people's brains to get rewired, as you and I have discussed before, even more so and, 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 and in a more negative way. And if, to take it one step further, you know, as adults, we've already had a lot of, a lot of um, connections made. But you take children who are developing, and, 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 and by the way, brains are very plastic. Brains have the ability to change and to move and develop. It's not irreversible, but you take children's brains who are developing and who, who need this rich, rich dynamic with other people and other children to get, to get 
dendrites to form to get these extensions in their brains to go out and meet other and meet other cells and you take these children and instead of having them interacting with other children other people and uh, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say even even seeing other people I mean I think from a from a developmental perspective I'm not talking about a safety perspective I'm not going to go there I'm just talking developmental perspective seeing other people you know having the the ability to fully see faces you take all of that and you deprive and you deprive a brain of that and then you stick it in front of a computer you are missing an opportunity for a uh, for the brain to develop in a way that we are normally developing, and then you're creating alternate pathways so that children are interacting with the internet in a way that re- is replacing what they would formerly have done in interact- interacting with people and interacting with children and interacting with their environment, and this has not been good for them. I hear um, people talking about autism as somehow being connected to this. It just seems to me lately, and maybe I'm getting off track on this, I don't know, but I, I seem to know wherever I talk to people, they either have a child or they know somebody with a child that has it's on the spectrum. That's the term I hear, which I guess is, a, is another way of expressing autism. Is there a connection between this syndrome we've been discussing and what seems like an increase in the number of cases of autism? So, yes, I think there is. And let me tell you how I think that connection works. So, first of all, in terms of absolute diagnosis, just in, just from a purely number perspective, in 2000, the uh, the number of diagnoses of autism was 6.7 per 1,000, or 1 in 150. And in 2018, the diagnoses was 23 per 1,000, or 1 in 44. So we went from a diagnosis rate of 1 in 150 to 1 in 44. So the absolute in so the absolute number is an increase. And some say it may be because we're increasing the um, the awareness of it. Or some would say because the actual incidence is increasing. I'm, I'm going to say combination of both. Now, to your point, is it because of the Internet? Here's what I think. I think that there is absolutely the strongest, the strongest indicator of most things, not 100%, but the strongest indicator of most things happening is genetics. So that if you're genetically inclined to expressing certain illnesses, you're going to get that illness. And I think with regard to autism spectrum disorders, I think that really the strongest indicator of whether you're going to get it is a genetic predisposition. And that being said, it can be highly, highly remediated, particularly, particularly for, they call it autism spectrum disorder because there are all, there are all degrees of it from being highly, you know, almost non-functioning autistic where you think of the classic autistic person. Um, who's nonverbal, has a lot of self-injurious behavior, has a difficult time uh, functioning independent, to the the, um, autistic person, the diagnosis which has been faded out, but people are getting familiar with it, uh, which is the Asperger diagnosis, which is basically what a lot of people have when they have a child on the spectrum. A lot of high-functioning people are talking about the Asperger person. Now, the Asperger person is the one that I think is most affected by internet use because this is a kid that might have been somebody who was high, you know, like kind of super nerdy when we when we were growing up, but because this kid was basically uh, basically socialized a lot, maybe they got away with kind of being what we would call normal typical. But in today's society, they are not, or in today's, but recently they're they're being 
isolated on the internet, they're not getting social interaction, and they're getting and they're becoming more and more um, less engaged. The plus side, I would say, by the way, before COVID, was that these kids were were being pulled or being identified, and they were getting remediated because the kids in our in our era who were kind of on the spectrum and not identified, we're also getting bullied and also getting um, tormented. So the good news was before the internet and like in between, we were identifying these kids and we were remediating them. Then came the internet and uh, these kids may or may not have been identified, but what happened was instead of getting socialized, they were getting socialized by the internet. And then the internet was kind of I would say developing their brain in a very negative way and all of this benefit that we were, that we were making I think went back maybe three steps, four steps, five steps. That's well-known forensic psychiatrist Dr. Renee Kohansky of the MD Edge PsychCast podcast. Coming up next in our special 2022 Half Year in Review, a visit with a good doctor in Las Vegas. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Wrap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with our special 2022 Half Year in Review edition of the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the year thus far in the national conversation. Unfortunately, COVID-19 was a dominant force in shaping our lives during the first half of 2022 as it was throughout 2021 and 2020 and even a little bit into 2019. Joining us for a recap is nationally respected physician and radio talk show host heard daily across America on the Genesis Communications Network, Dr. Dahlia Wax. Dr. Wax, this is our our half a year in review show. So we're we're looking back at 2022 and a half. And even this is a bigger picture question that I'm about to ask you, because I think it goes all the way back to 2019. How has COVID changed the medical establishment? You know, it's fantastic. I, I think one good thing that came out of COVID is the rise in telemedicine, mm. but that could also be a bad thing as well. But we had to learn how to take care of patients remotely, and we had to 
alter a lot of long-standing rules in medicine and become flexible, which doctors can't always be, to try to take care of people remotely. And I think on one end, telemedicine saved a lot of lives, but on the flip side, people are spoiled and don't want to go into the doctor anymore. And I fear that COVID is preventing a lot of early diagnosis of things that need to be caught early. So one of the first things I think COVID did, did was that. It's amazing. What goes around comes around. It used to be the doctors made house calls. That was a normal part of the medical establishment. You get sick. If you were a kid, your mother would call. If you were sick, you'd call. You'd be in bed, always in bed when the doctor comes, he pulls up to the house, has his little black bag, the stethoscope, the tongue depressors, um, uh, you know, little hammer to check your knee and your reflexes and a um, little conversation, uh, say, ah, and a uh, prescription is given, or uh, maybe he pulls some magic out of his black uh, bag. And that was a common thing. And then doctors started not to want to do that anymore. And slowly but surely, the house call became a total thing of the past. And um, people would have to go through all the rigmarole of going to the doctor's office. And now the people don't want to go to the doctor's office. So they're getting a taste of their own medicine. Um, <laughs> it's funny when you think about it. I mean, it's not really funny. It's sad. But what goes around comes around. And then COVID also trained people not, uh, you know, studious in, in science on, on how microbiology, immunology works. And, and I think many people have now learned a lot about germs. They're going to be more careful about hand washing, more careful about germs and kissing and things like that. And so, you know, there, there might be some silver linings coming out of it, but, but definitely the medical landscape is much different than we've ever seen. Is, has it added a level of humility? Are doctors more humble either because maybe they've come face to face with how little they know about some mysteries or maybe that's always been the case and uh, perhaps people treat doctors differently is there more criticism and skepticism uh, in the general doctor-patient relationship because of how publicized all of these different political and uh, and scientific debates have been going on now for a few years in which doctors are being demonized by other doctors and by politicians yeah, what what went wrong? And I was very fortunate to avoid that because I'm very open-minded to all sides, is what went wrong is you had doctors out there that were absolutists saying, you know, whatever, oh, your, your face covering is going to work. And when other doctors are like, um, they need the N95s, these, these, what they're wearing isn't working, those people were marginalized. And same thing with the vaccine. If you just get the vaccine, you're good. And patients don't like to be lied to. And the doctors that said, look, I'm learning with you. We're going to take this one step at a time and, and we're going to work with you individually. And all the stuff you learned about natural immunity and viruses outsmarting things are not wrong. And, and people were told they were stupid and people were not allowed to have conversations with their doctor about, well, you know, why is it all or all or nothing? And so the doctors that were very rigid and, and not open to that the science is evolving got egg in their face. And so, so patients are looking for the doctors that were open-minded this whole time and, and were a little bit more, more 
um, understanding about how, you know, masks have limitations, mandates have limitations, natural immunity has a play. So, so I think doctors learned a lesson that you can't just go by what the president says or what the CDC says. You have to use them as guidance, but you also have to let patients talk and be a part of their the decision-making process. That's Dr. Dahlia Wax of the Genesis Communications Network. You're plugged into our special 2022 half-year in-review installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap. Joining us now is noted law professor at Bentley University in Boston. He's the founder of the crime-fighting website Scamicide.com, Steve Wiseman. Steve Wiseman, this has been so far an amazing year, as as every year in the 20s has been. Since uh, COVID-19 began, you know, 2019, 2020, 21, 22, they're all blurring together. One of the themes of this era and certainly here in 2022 it's continuing, has been the evolution of our understanding of the implications and the effect of social media on our lives, from psychological things to legal things. What are your thoughts off the top of your head looking back at 2022 of how this concern has evolved in terms of humanity's relationship with social media? It's it's something that is of incredibly great concern to me, and I think it is so much bigger than uh, maybe a lot of people think. You know, when social media was first created, the great Yogi Berra, philosopher, once said it's very difficult to make predictions, particularly about the future. And I don't think anyone who uh, was creating social media realized the 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 significant effect it would have on society. And so what we have seen is we've seen an explosion, you know, propaganda and misinformation was out there before, but never at the levels that it could be spread uh, through social media. And this is something where, you know, the the laws that were put uh, into effect when social media was created, particularly uh, Section 230, which uh, kind of insulates from liability the the social media sites for things that people uh, you know post no one really considered the amount of uh, misinformation disinformation and how that could be used to influence uh, not just public opinion but elections uh, and raising you know, some, you know really violent groups giving them an opportunity so the, here you come into we're on the horns of the dilemma how do you protect free speech and how do you keep lies from uh, going over and not just lies but real harmful things uh, insightful things I uh, we, we've seen mass killings and we've seen mass killings where actually they are broadcast on social media even if they're brought down once something's up it is up and people are able to retrieve it so to me one of the biggest things is if we are going to have democracy if we are going to have decency some kind of regulation is going to have to come down and not in the distant future. Uh, We're really going to be in danger if we don't have social media responsible regulation that also respects the First Amendment prior to, well, I don't think we'll have it prior to midterm elections, but certainly before the, uh, the general election in 2024. You and I have discussed many times how um, legislation and uh, the legal community uh, lags behind changes in technology. Um, These changes are very rapid, and this is a really uh, tremendous example of that syndrome, isn't it? Yeah, 
It, it really is. And, and you and I have said this before, as, as you indicated, the law is always slow to catch up with latest changes in technology. And then I think it's even worse in this particular area because, you know, you and I have seen some of the uh, the hearings before Congress, and it's, sometimes it's actually embarrassing to see senators and congressmen talking with people in tech really showing a, you can't really describe it any other way, but an ignorance as to how technology works. You know, you hope that they have a staff that can help them, but the fact that the uh, the legislators um, really don't know, many of them, uh, how this technology works makes it even more difficult for them to come up with solutions. Do you think that we really should be focused, you know, you are an educator and you are um, a legal scholar. Do you think that we need, in this time in our country, a massive uh, reinvigoration of teaching the First Amendment and what it means, that, that, that it's really important that every citizen, every media person, every kid understand as best, as best as we can make possible the tenets of the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights. Yeah, you know, there's no. It, it's not a coincidence uh, that the uh, the First Amendment, free speech, is the very first amendment. It is the the most critical element of democracy. But it is, you know, nothing is unlimited. And you know, before we say you, know, you couldn't, you didn't have the right to uh, shout fire in a crowded theater. We really have to recognize what kind of limitations can we put on it without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, this is a, is a real challenge. There are, we're, we're looking, at least uh, the scholars are looking to the, the kind of limitations that are done in, in Europe, and they are more limiting of that than we are. But it also can, can be done in a, uh, in a respectful manner to the First Amendment. But quite frankly, you know, uh, I agree with you as far as teaching. A lot of people don't truly understand it, including the fact that the First Amendment limits the right of the government to, uh, to restrict free speech. It doesn't limit uh, the rights of uh, ordinary citizens or companies. And uh, this is something, particularly with the, uh, the pervasive social media, that we really have to look at as far as what kind of regulations can be made, but to keep that vibrant First Amendment in place. And uh, you mentioned something else in there that, that connects to this because, you know, I've always believed if we don't follow the First Amendment, we really – everything else that we consider to be part of America, American freedom, American democracy kind of goes out the window. I also see uh, as a result of social media and some of the practices particularly of the younger generation uh, re involving revealing things about yourself um, either purposefully or, you know, where you have no choice or you can't participate here on the grid where all the action is. Um, uh, is the loss of privacy something that um, could destroy our, our freedom? And do you think possibly there'll be a turnaround in that and people will start to seek anonymity or, um, uh, you know, be a little bit hipper to the fact that they're destroying their lives by being so open on the Internet? Yeah, I, I do see that. And I actually have a little bit more hope uh, in that area. And in, in fact, here again was something that no one 
ever really was uh, able to predict the loss of our privacy, the gathering of our data. You know, Steve Jobs once said, if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. And you look at things like uh, Facebook and other social media that are free. Well, nothing is free. And what we're paying for, uh, it is we're paying for our privacy. And the data that they gather is so used to be able to manipulate us. Now, it's one thing to get you to be manipulated to buy soap. It's another thing to manipulate you in regard to your political decisions. And the kind of manipulation that can be done and with just vast amounts of data and how we can be influenced is an absolute huge, huge issue. And like you said, people aren't aware of it. First of all, they, they click in a, I agree to the terms of service without ever agree, knowing what the terms of service are. And we do need to have laws somewhat similar again to uh, Europe where they are protecting more the privacy of people because privacy is, is so much more than just, you know, well, I'm not going to get uh, a, uh, you know, a junk mail. It is, it's, it's a huge issue. Uh, like you said, particularly millennials and others that they, they put, they, they're part of the problem in that they put the information out there willingly. They turn it over to scammers who are able to use that to leverage people. But it also can be uh, leveraged by almost anyone who's in a position where they have to influence. And uh, our data that we have, privacy, is a right that needs to be more fully recognized. But I think we're on the trail to doing so. That's Steve Weissman, professor of law at Bentley University in Boston and the founder of the crime-fighting website Scamicide.com. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation. This edition was a special look back at the top topics of the first half of 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Rap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.